0: Well, good morning. You know, what a joy it is to to get to come together uh, to worship through song uh, and to sing the gospel to remind ourselves of those uh, glorious truths. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please open with me to John chapter four. We will continue our study there in the gospel of John. And as you're turning there, I just uh, had one other quick announcement, just a reminder to all of the youth students uh, and all of the parents. Any parent who would like to come is invited to come. Uh, this Wednesday here uh, in this room we're uh, having a discussion on relationships uh, of how we are to approach those as uh, Christians and how do we uh search for uh, a spouse how do we approach dating uh from a biblical perspective and so uh there are many questions in the youth ministry regarding that and I thought it would also be helpful just for parents to be uh aware and I would also just encourage even if you don't have children in youth ministry yet uh if you have children who are in elementary school uh, I would encourage you to still come to this because that day those conversations are coming for you you're probably not looking forward to them right now uh but they, they the shepherding needs to begin to take place uh, of their hearts uh just concerning how to pursue a spouse uh, in the future so that will be uh this Wednesday uh, here in the multi-purpose building uh at 6:30 and everybody uh is uh, invited uh, now uh, as we, we kind of jump into our our study of John as I was uh, developing as a as a high school and college uh, football player, uh, it helped me tremendously as I began to, to understand my own strengths and weaknesses as a quarterback. Now, and when I first started playing football, uh, in my pride and in my foolishness, I didn't think I had any weaknesses. I only had strengths. Uh, there wasn't anything I couldn't do on the football field, right? Uh, but then little by little, uh, as I played more and more, uh, I began to see my own weaknesses. Uh, I began to see uh, what I didn't do well. Uh, and as a football player, whatever you see that you aren't doing well, you say, okay, well, now I need to begin to focus upon this. And I started to shift my attention towards those areas that were weaknesses for me. Uh, and my coaches helped me and uh, other, other players came alongside me. And I can also say this, in a similar way, every, every church also has strengths and weaknesses, just like any athlete. Churches also have things that they are really good at and things that they need to work on. Uh, and I would say this, that there is no perfect church out there. And I would say that there, uh, there's no perfection here at Ambassador Bible Fellowship. Uh, and some of you may be shocked to hear that, which I'm, I'm glad. Uh, and others are like, well, tell me something I don't know. Uh, and, and you already are aware that this is not a perfect church. Uh, and as we begin to, to look at strengths and weaknesses, as a pastor, I... I love to focus on strengths, right? That's where my encouragement lies. Uh, and as we get ready to, to celebrate two years next week, uh, it, it's fun to, to, for me to look back and just reflect upon all uh, that I have seen take place, not just as we've been growing numerically, but also uh, in the transformation of lives that we have seen. Uh, in uh, addictions that have been overcome, in and, and relationships that have been reconciled, in and, and lives that continue to hunger more and more for God and His Word. Uh, that, that is what is encouraging to me. I think we're, we're doing those well of, of discipling and, and bringing the Word of God to bear on the lives of the saints. Uh, but as a pastor, I'm also very aware of our weaknesses as a church. And I think one of those weaknesses uh, is in the area of evangelism. The the area of proclaiming the gospel, the good news to to others. And and I would seek to draw our attention to it today, first and foremost, because it's in the text. Uh, It's where we're going to be looking at in John four. But then also uh, because, again, it's something that we need to to come to grips with, to look at and then begin to grow in. Uh, And I also would say this. And it's been said that churches take on the personality of their lead pastor yeah, and that is a truth that, that pierces my own heart deeply. Because as I stand up here and say, well, here's something that we need to work on as a church, I, I see this directly as a reflection of me. I see this as, uh, as something that I myself need to work on uh, and lead us in changing, in, in changing our, our culture and our, our habit pattern and our way of life here together as a church body. And so I want you to know as I'm preaching this message I'm speaking to you, but I've been preaching this message to myself all week, uh, and I am preaching this message even right now to my own heart uh, and to my own life. And if this is a weakness of our church, how do we grow in this area together, corporately, as a body of believers? How do we cultivate a culture of evangelism at Ambassador Bible Fellowship? Before diving into that topic, I think it's, it's helpful to kind of frame our discussion of what do we mean by evangelism? When I say that word, what, what do I mean? And I found a really helpful definition uh, by a pastor and theologian named John Cheeseman, who d- clarifies what evangelism is and what it is not. He says this, evangelism is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making out a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying Jesus saves. Some of these things may be right and good in their place, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. Is to evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what He has done to save sinners, to warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would add to that, wouldn't subtract anything, but I would add this. It's understanding that we are called to proclaim that message, and then we leave the results up to a sovereign God. That faithful evangelism is the proclamation of the message. We don't, uh, or we have to differentiate between evangelism and the results of evangelism. Faithful evangelism can just be the proclamation. We don't convert anybody. We don't change and transform anyone's heart. Who has to do that? The Lord. That's what we've been looking at all in John chapter 3. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So understanding that is what faithful evangelism is. The proclamation of the saving message of salvation, and then leaving the results up to God. So, how do we, as individuals and as a church, grow in our proclamation of that message? Uh, in this conversation that we've been looking at these last few weeks, in, in John chapter four, between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan woman, what well, we can help us in many, many ways. Because as we as we look at this conversation uh, and the results of it, we're going to see really two models of what an evangelist can look like. The first model is the perfect model, Jesus himself, the, the master evangelist. So if we really want to to sit and learn what it looks like to be an evangelist, to share the gospel faithfully, who should we look at first and foremost? Jesus himself. But then secondly, someone who's a little bit more our speed is the Samaritan woman. Because as soon as she hears and believes, she's going to go into her hometown and begin to share the gospel with others. She's going to say, "Hey, come meet Jesus. Come meet this person. Can he be the Messiah? I think he is. Let's go out and see him." So we see a master evangelist and a novice evangelist. As so we look at this conversation, but look with me, let's let's read together beginning uh in John chapter 4 verse 1, just so it's kind of going to be fresh on our minds because I'm going to be pulling things here and there. Look with me. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to drink water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. As I said, what we're going to see here is evangelism being modeled for us, which is really helpful because we're being really honest. A lot of us will struggle in even knowing how to approach a conversation. How do I have a conversation with somebody and then steer it towards spiritual topics? How do I go about doing that? And what it really is helpful is if we sit in with somebody who's able to do that. We learn so well by, by watching, by observing and making note. And that's what we are able to do here as we read this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We get to, to be a fly on the wall or, I guess, buzzing around this well in the first century as they converse. And what we need to make note of are seven lessons, seven truths that we should apply to our own gospel conversations. These these truths are going to give us encouragement on what we need to do. How we, how can we grow as individuals and as a church in our evangelism? Well, understanding these truths. And these truths begin with the first lesson. That's the number one, as you see there on your outline, that we need to begin with intentionality. Jesus began all of this by saying, I have to go through Samaria. We saw that in verse 4. It was necessary. He had to pass through. He had to go to this town to speak with this woman. And when he gets to the town of Sychar, just south of it, he goes to the well and he literally sits on top of the well. So nobody else is going to be able to come without speaking to him. And then when this woman comes... Rather than getting up and and getting out of the way, he asks her for a drink. He initiates the conversation. Uh, He begins to speak with her, which would have been absolutely unheard of and frowned upon in the time of Jesus, especially for a rabbi. For a teacher to speak alone with a woman would have almost ruined his reputation. And yet Jesus begins and initiates this conversation here. And that is where all evangelism begins. It begins with intentionality. Uh, We have to be intentional, and developing this mindset is where evangelism begins. And if we are not being intentional, evangelism probably will never happen. Do those those conversations usually happen on accident? Someone just walks up to you and says, what must I do to be saved? Uh, No, we we have to begin to be intentional about that. And that doesn't have to mean anything elaborate. There's a story that somebody tells of uh, going to have lunch with a a pastor in Washington, D.C. named Mark Dever. Uh, and uh, this person shares and says, well, they were going to go to a subway nearby the church there. And so they're, they're walking to the subway uh, and they walk into the subway and Pastor Mark greets uh, the Muslim couple that owns the subway. He greets them by name and immediately begins to have a friendly conversation with them. So, wow, this is interesting. So uh, the, this gentleman who's with him, they, they, they get their sandwiches, they sit down and then he just begins to ask Pastor Mark about... His his intentionality with evangelism, he says, yeah, I just I just go and frequent the same businesses, the same restaurants, uh, and I get to know whoever's working there for the purpose of being able to one day share the gospel with them. And I've heard another story about the same pastor uh, that somebody else was with him and they walked past like three or four subways to get to another subway and the guy who's with him is like, why are we, why do we keep passing subways if we're going to subway? He's like, well, I've met all of them and I've shared the gospel with all of the employees. So I'm going to this one now. He just keeps working through all of the subways and like, okay, so this is, this is what intentionality looks like. The relationships that he has, how he's going about his normal day. He's being intentional with his time and just saying, Hey, I'm going to focus upon building relationship so that I might one day be able to share the gospel with the employees, with the owners. Uh, and this is the, the mindset that we need to begin to develop. Uh, and if we don't begin to develop, again, not evangelizing is our default. right? Being being silent and keeping to ourselves, that's our default position. So if we are going to grow in evangelism, the first step is to begin to say, hey, I need to be intentional in this. I need a, a some type of a, a way of uh, being intentional. Some of us may say, well... Or, or kind of excuse ourselves by saying, well, I'm not a gifted evangelist. Right? Everybody, anybody ever use that excuse? Right? Uh, I, I'm not, uh, I don't have all of the answers. What if they, what if they say this? Uh, well, and, and my response to that would be, there are some things in the Christian life that we are all called to obey regardless of our giftedness. Okay, so take for instance this. Uh, every single Christian is called to be merciful. And yet there are some Christians who are given the spiritual gift of mercy. Now, that spiritual gift of mercy, does that negate any, everybody else's responsibility to be merciful? No, not at all. And it's the same way with evangelism. There are some who are gifted as evangelists, and you can just see the fruit in their life. But certain gifted individuals... Doesn't necessarily remove the responsibility of every single believer. Every single Christian is called to be an evangelist, to call, to go and make disciples. And again, so we need to develop a system to be intentional. What we have encouraged is not the only system, but in our growth groups, uh, we have encouraged something called prayer, care, share. Uh, that as as you come uh, to your growth group, you're you're going to try and be and begin to be intentional by coming up with three to five people whether those would be neighbors, co-workers, uh, family members, uh, friends that that you interact with on a regular basis. Three to five people that you can begin to pray for. Uh, And then, as you're praying for them, praying for the Lord to work upon their heart, praying for opportunities for you to share the gospel, praying for yourself to have boldness and courage to speak about Jesus. Praying for those things and then also looking for ways to tangibly care for them, to demonstrate the love of Christ to them. And As you look for ways to do that, all of that is really pre-evangelism. All all of that is, again, what, what Mark Dever does of going and being intentional and developing relationships because the final component of that, the prayer, care, and then share, that's really where evangelism takes place. Where, where you get to that point where now I'm going to have a spiritual conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to shift uh, the conversation uh, from Subway sandwiches to the living bread. To to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Learning and understanding how do I go about doing that. And when you have a relationship with somebody, it's a little bit easier to steer the conversation in that way. But that's what we want to encourage everybody to be doing in our growth groups because again this is something that all christians are called to do all of us have this responsibility and this duty and we are not going to be faithful in it unless we begin by being intentional that's the first lesson that we see here uh, from jesus the second lesson is that as we speak with others that we are to present a holy god we are to present a holy God. If we're going to, to share the gospel with others, we eventually have to get to the point where we are going to speak about who God is. We're going to tell others. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at the beginning of the conversation. Uh, if, you, if you look at John chapter 4, Jesus brings in who God is much later. Verse 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus explains who God is, that he's altogether different than we are. His holiness. And then he says, because God is spirit, how are we called to now worship God? In spirit. God isn't a physical being. He's a spiritual being. And we are called to worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we speak of God, we must present him as he is. And then explain the implications, even as Jesus did here. And the foremost characteristic of God... In the Bible, and one that is mentioned the most frequently is his holiness. The holiness of God, and the idea that God is separate, he is distinct, he is altogether greater than we are, he is altogether different from us. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a, a vision of God. And as he sees God on the, the throne, he immediately bows down. And what is it that he hears the angels, the seraphim, saying about God? How, how do they describe him? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what we need to, to focus upon, the holiness of God. And Jesus focuses upon this. When, when he says that God is spirit, nobody else is that way. We are physical beings. That's how God has created us. If we want spiritual life, we have to go to the one who is spirit. Additionally, in Matthew chapter nineteen, verses sixteen and seventeen, is another evangelistic conversation by Jesus with a man, young, rich ruler. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you ask me about what is good?" There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So again, if even when Jesus says there is only one who is good, he's establishing a distance between God, who is greater than we are, and humanity. And when we speak of the gospel, we need to speak of God and present him as being holy. And yet what is most interesting is that in our culture today... How does how does the world around us like to think of God? What's the defining characteristic that everyone if they could only pick one? What would they say? God is love. Absolutely, they they choose that one singular characteristic, and it's a good question to ask. Well, why do, why do they choose that one? Because there's a bunch of attributes of God. Right, why don't they focus upon his his omniscience or his omnipresence? Why do they focus upon love rather than any of the other a- attributes and One pastor says this, it's probably because men readily remember all attributes that might favor themselves and totally forget those which threaten or alarm them. And that's what we have to keep in mind, that the idea that God is greater than us, that He has demonstrated His distinctness, His holiness, that's a a sobering thought. That He is pure and good and righteous altogether different than us those are sobering things to think about it's much better just to think of god as being loving and kind and god is love but god is not only love god is love but love is not god i remember the the big sign after the obergefell uh, decision love wins god is love all of these statements were being made that are exalting love but pushing down and pushing aside, disregarding the holiness of God. And if we're going to share the gospel faithfully, we must speak of God's holiness, His purity, His status above us. And He has demonstrated that by giving us life and breath and everything. He's created all of us. and He is separate from us. That's what we must do first and foremost. Begin with intentionality, present a holy God, and then third we are called to reveal human sinfulness and this is important and it's difficult and if we're being really honest uh, this is this is far more difficult really than kind of any other aspect of sharing the gospel it's you know it's okay to to point to god to speak about who he is but it's it's far more difficult to establish human sinfulness and jesus did that here with the woman Right? He, he gets to the point where he's able to say, hey, here's your sin. Here's all of it. And she's amazed by that. How do you know that? He he calls her out on her sin. and That's also part of the, the gospel proclamation. And if we're going to proclaim a Savior, the implication of a Savior is that we need to be saved from something. And this is where, again, we can... Be fearful and draw back, because this is where conflict and consequences arise, right? See, w- when John the Baptist got really specific about sin, King Herod, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. He was arrested and ultimately beheaded later on. As we read a couple of weeks ago, as we've been reading through Acts in our Scripture reading here on the Sunday morning service, we read about Stephen, uh, and Stephen uh, g- gave this long account... To the Sanhedrin, the very same group of men that crucified Jesus. Jesus was killed and condemned by them. And Stephen, now giving an account to them, stands up. And if you read Acts chapter 7, it's a really long chapter. Like, man, he's he's going into Israel's history quite a bit. And there's no issues with talking about Israel's past sins. But when he comes to the point at the end of his message, he says this in verse 51. You stiff-necked people Then what was the response? Then there's conflict. Then there's we need to stone this guy. And oftentimes, again, that's where where we grow fearful. Because again, and we need to tread lightly as we do that, which we'll we'll talk about. But speaking about sin and identifying, revealing sin for what it really is, is never fun. It's not a message that people want to hear. There was a famous self help book published back in nineteen sixty seven. It's called I'm OK, you're okay. It's a bestseller. Right? Those are the those are the types of messages that people want to hear. Everything's good here. There's nothing that needs to change. Nothing needs to be addressed. That's an easy message to proclaim because it doesn't really upset anybody. Again, I'm okay, you're okay. But if we're going to to proclaim the gospel, we eventually have to reveal Human sinfulness. And, we, and this is so important because if we don't address human sinfulness, there's really no explanation for why we need a Savior. If there is no sin, what do we need a Savior from? Well, we have to get to this point. We have to, again, lay out the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Because the cross of Christ means nothing apart from our sinfulness. What is it we are called to turn from? and turn to christ we are called to repent from sin and turn to jesus in faith and we have to understand and hold the bad news before we get to the good news of christ which is the fourth lesson that we see here that jesus himself lays out for us that that we are to lift up christ and this is where jesus began in the conversation he didn't waste any any time to get to the place where he's going to lift up himself as the person that she needs to turn to and to believe in. He says, hey, give me a drink of water. She says, what are you talking about? Why are you talking to me? He says, well, if you only knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. And she's just thoroughly confused. He says, I can give you living water. That's what he says to her. And he holds himself up as the ultimate source of satisfaction, as the ultimate solution to the problems of life. And if we are going to, again, be faithful evangelists, we need to speak about Christ. To speak about who he is and what he has done, but also to speak clearly about what he offers to sinners. What benefits does he promise to those who would look to him in faith? And we don't promise health and wealth, we don't promise happiness and success. But we should speak of joy and peace in the middle of trials. We should speak of deliverance and freedom in areas where we were previously enslaved to sin. We should, again, speak of relationships where there was great conflict and now there has been reconciliation. That's what we should speak of and promise to those who follow Jesus, who would put their faith in Him. Most importantly, that we can be forgiven and reconciled to the holy God that we have sinned and rebelled against. We can speak of those benefits. Have you ever thought about how easy it is to speak of good news that you have received on, on other areas? Like if you just won a car uh, in a contest, you would probably do what? Everywhere you went that day running errands, what would you be saying to people? I, I want a car. This is a fantastic day. Uh, or when you get a, a good news from a, a doctor who is you know, giving a report. You've been waiting for this report. You get good news. Who do you want to tell? everybody or your kid wins an award right you you put bumper stickers on your car Uh, you do all of those things You, you want to spread that good news but the greatest news that we have ever heard the greatest person that we could ever speak about sometimes we do what we shrink back from speaking about jesus and again speaking about jesus is a little bit easier than speaking about the bad news the sin but we still shrink back at times from even presenting Jesus and all of his goodness, all of his glory. And we should speak not only of who Jesus is and what he has done for all of humanity, but learning to speak about how he has worked in our life. And I would say this, if you are, if you are struggling in your own walk with the Lord, you're probably not going to be motivated at all to go and tell anybody else about him. Right? If your spiritual life is stagnant, you're not going to be excited to go, Hey, come follow Jesus. My life is miserable. Come come follow me. Come follow Him with me. That, that doesn't happen, right? So if, if the Lord has been working in our life, if we are experiencing the ongoing transformation uh, and applying the gospel to our own life, and we're, if we are growing, we are going to be more apt to speak about Jesus to lift Him up as the Savior who has transformed our life. We're going to be excited to speak about Him to others. That's what we need to begin to assess in our own life. Where are we spiritually? Are we experiencing the fullness of life that Christ promises? And if we're not, we're not going to be tempted. We're not going to speak to anybody else about it. And then we, we first and foremost have to address things in our own hearts and in our own lives so that we might draw near to him we must be intentional we must present a holy god we must reveal the sinfulness of man and then we must lift up christ and then we must also invite a response the fifth lesson that we see here from jesus as an evangelist that we are called to eventually push for a decision and jesus does this at the end of their conversation in verses 25 and 26 the woman said to him i know that messiah is coming and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. This is a Jesus proclaiming himself to be the Messiah, but it's also an invitation for the woman to look to him in faith. Hey, I'm the one that you've been looking for, is what Jesus is saying. This is an invitation for her to turn and believe. And then we're, we're kind of left at that point, verse 26, of, hey, how is she going to respond? What's she going to do? What does she think of Jesus? And back in John chapter 3, as we saw this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, we didn't get Nicodemus' response. We weren't told, what does he do? Does he believe? Does he not believe? We're, We're left hanging. But here in this conversation, we see the woman's response. We see immediately what she does. The beginning marks of discipleship. She has heard from Jesus and she has come to believe in him. And then she immediately goes and tells others. And as we read this little portion of of John's gospel, it should remind us about things that we've already seen. The the story of Andrew in John chapter 1. If you just turn the page in your Bible and look back at John chapter 1 verses 40 to 42. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. And he first found his own brothers, Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. As soon as Andrew heard from Jesus and believed, what is the first thing he did? He said, hey, brother, you need to come meet him also reminds us, this is exactly what happens in the the verses immediately following with Philip. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip went and found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. this, This is what disciples do. That's what John is laying out for us. Disciples, followers of Jesus, when they see and believe Jesus, what do they immediately do? They go and proclaim. They go and announce to others, Hey, look who I've found. You need to come meet him, this one who has changed my life. And after speaking about a holy God and sinful man and a crucified Savior, we urge, we, we, we invite people to make a decision. To look to Jesus in faith. We want to invite a response. We don't, we don't manipulate. We don't coerce. We don't force. But we ask for a decision. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in uh, England in the middle of the 20th century, tells a story of a man who had been disappointed uh, that Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, didn't give an altar call at the end of a sermon the previous night so that uh martin lloyd jones is speaking with this man and the man says to him you know doctor if you had asked me to stay behind last night i would have done so so hey if you had given an invitation i, I would have come forward and given my life to christ and so martin lloyd jones says all right well i'm asking you right now come with me give your life to christ and the man says well no no the, if you had asked last night i would have done it i would have given my life to christ last night." Lloyd-Jones said this, My dear friend, if what happened to you last night does not last 24 hours, I'm not interested in it. If you're not as ready to come with me now as you were last night, you have not got the right, the true thing. Whatever affected you last night was only temporary and passing, and you still do not see your real need for Christ. Love that. We want want to push for a decision because in pushing for that decision, people will, will reveal where they are. And again, that's faithful evangelism. The proclamation of the gospel here is the truth of who Jesus is. And now he calls everybody to look to him in faith. That gives the responsibility to every single person who hears. What are they going to do with the message? What are they going to do with Jesus? We need to invite a response because a response is needed. And not making a response is a response. Saying, well, I'll I'll think about that later. Saying, I'll think about it later is saying, I don't want that right now. There's other things that are more important right now. So maybe maybe it'll be more important later. But the gospel message has urgency to it. Life and death hang in the balance. Eternity hangs in the balance. There's nothing more important that you could share with somebody else. So we want to always invite a response and to call people to reflect upon the message and then respond in faith. This is what we've seen so far. All of these these lessons and the first five lessons, the first ones really just begin with intentionality. And the next four are all really the content of the gospel who God is, who man is, who Jesus is, and then calling for a response. And then these next two next two lessons that we see and learn from Jesus and the Samaritan woman are going to be about how we are to go and proclaim. Lesson number six is do your best. And I, I like to qualify that because if you just take that away, you're like what does that mean, just do your best? Uh, and I would explain it this way. The Samaritan woman was an infant believer. She was a minutes-old disciple, right? And yet, what is it that she could not wait to do? To go and speak about Jesus. Now, she didn't go to a Sunday school class on how to share her faith. She, she didn't uh, say, well, before I can go talk with anybody else about Jesus, I, I need to, uh, to just learn more and more and more. She didn't say that. She immediately went she was immediately willing to go. Sometimes we can get into this mindset of unless I've been trained to go and share my faith, I'm unable to. Well, I would say this. Have you heard the gospel? Have you believed it? Then you know what you need to go and proclaim. If you have believed the gospel, you know how you should speak about Jesus. You know what, how you yourself were saved. And so you know the saving message of the gospel, and that's all you need to go do. Just go and be willing to proclaim that message. If Jesus has changed your life, go and speak about how he's changed your life. Just go and proclaim the message. There's a, uh, a book on evangelism written by, by J. Mac Stiles, and he was a pastor... Uh, back east. And he recalls a time going to a pastor's convention at Southeastern Seminary uh, and the president of the seminary, Danny Aiken, posed this question to the, asked this question to a group of pastors and seminarians and theologians and professors. And he, he says, how many of you came to faith in a church that used evangelistic methods that you would now reject? Right? So how many of you came to, to faith in ways that you, you wouldn't now encourage. And what was amazing is that every single hand in the room went up. Every single hand. And then I love J. Max Stiles' commentary. He says this response shows us that there is much room for humility when it comes to evangelism. That we need to acknowledge that God is sovereign and can do as he wills to bring people to himself. There is no formula that dictates how God must work in evangelism. And though we may disagree with the evangelistic practices of individuals, ministries, or churches, we must also recognize that when people develop a good-hearted commitment to evangelism, God can produce true fruit. And this is key. He says, I, for one, will take people practicing evangelism as best they can over those who forego evangelism until they have the perfect practice. I think that's key. of just developing this mindset of, hey, am I going to be perfect in how I share the gospel every single time? No. Am I going to have every single answer to every apologetic question? Am I going to have every single answer to any question about the Bible that they may have an objection to or say, well, what about this? I say, you know what? I don't know, but I trust in the one who has saved my life. The one who has transformed my life. And I believe that the word of God, when we rightly understand it, is not going to contradict itself. So I don't have that for you right now, but, but let me get back to you. That's a good and honest answer when people have objections. But the key is, is being willing to go and share the gospel. Being willing to just go and do your best. And again, the results are up to who? God we're called to just go and proclaim and we don't know how the lord is going to respond we don't know who the lord will save jesus had a perfect working knowledge of that right like well jesus had that big advantage he knew exactly hey he goes and shares the gospel with this samaritan woman and he he knows how she's going to react and then she's going to go back to her town and tell everybody and then the whole town's going to come and see jesus he knew that ahead of time i don't know that it's like yeah We don't know that, but we do know that some will respond. We don't know who, but we have a promise that as we go, Christ will save. That we are the instruments that God will use to save others. So we need to go and be faithful instruments, faithful carriers of the gospel. Remembering that, again, our role, our task is to go and proclaim, to go and do our best, and that is what we are called to do. That's the sixth lesson that we see. And then the last one It's so important. This last lesson, that we are to speak with gentleness. Because did you notice how Jesus interacted with this woman here? How he spoke to her. How he spoke even when he addressed her greatest sin. Not in anger, not in... Ex- Condemnation. He just said, hey, this is what's true. And he just allowed it to sit there. He was direct. He was uncompromising. But he was also gentle, gracious, kind. And here's something to keep in mind. That as we see Jesus dealing with and interacting with this woman at the well, we need to keep in mind that this is exactly how Jesus interacts and deals with us. And if we are called to be his ambassadors, if we are called to be his representatives, how are we supposed to go and interact with others? In the exact same way. There's been a couple of different instances on social media recently where I've seen video footage of, of Christians, men and women who are standing outside of abortion clinics. And, and they're yelling and screaming and condemning anybody they see walking into you know, Planned Parenthood. And it always breaks my heart when I, when I see that, because I would say that those Christians are not faithfully holding up to the message and communicating it as they should. I would say this, I agree with them completely that abortion is the taking of a human life and that we must stand firmly against abortion. But there's ways that we take that stand I can dishonor Christ and prevent us from being able to minister to people in the future. So take, for instance, if that woman walking into Planned Parenthood, if years from now, after she's had an abortion, and she's facing deep remorse and guilt and shame and grief, do you think she's going to think, hey, what church were those people from? What, that were yelling, I know somebody was yelling at me as I walked into Planned Parenthood that day. What church were they from? Do you think she's going to ever think that or say that? No. She's not. And the reality is that if people are doing that, they're yelling and their their condemnation, their their lack of grace and gentleness, that may turn her away from wanting to turn to to any church. That's a very real thing to experience guilt and shame and remorse after an abortion. And I would just say this. If we are going to be serious about ministering to others in our community, and we want to be serious. Again, Bruce talked about how great the the conference was yesterday. Fifty-eight of us uh, were there. And we want to have a huge ministry in our community because we see the need. We see that there are those out there who are hurting and hopeless. And we get one to two emails or phone calls every single week asking for counseling. And right now we're having to turn people away. But imagine with me the ministry that we can have if we approach people with gentleness and grace and kindness and where the the hurt the hurting can come to us and know that we're not going to to slam them but we're going to minister to them that we're going to speak with them with gentleness and grace we're still going to call sin sin we're still going to point them to a holy god we're still going to uphold jesus as the ultimate source of satisfaction as the ultimate solution to all of life's problems. But we're going to do it with gentleness, grace, and compassion. Then that completely changes things. Now imagine us with with an army of, of gentle biblical counselors ready to minister to those in our community. That would be powerful. But we lose all of that if our reputation as individuals, if our reputation as a church, is that we will, we will just break you if you're hurting. I was reading in Matthew's gospel this week, uh, and uh, yesterday at the conference they, they pointed to these verses that are quoted in Matthew's gospel, but Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 3, speaking about the gentleness of God's servant, speaking about the gentleness of Jesus. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth Justice. See, Jesus doesn't hurt. He doesn't break those who are already bruised, who are already hurting. But what's our tendency? It's to do just that. He doesn't snuff out the faintly burning wick. Those who people who are coming discouraged and disheartened. What does he do? He gives them hope. He binds up their burdens and heals them. And we are called to do the same as we carry forth the message of the gospel. With gentleness, uncompromising in the truth, but speaking with grace and compassion. Now, all of the things that I said this morning, they may not have been new information for you. This is common truth about evangelism in the church, but we always need to be reminded. We always need to call to remembrance what our duty is as Christians, as disciples, as I was reading this week in a book called The Broken-Hearted Evangelist by Jeremy Walker, he said this, and it was, again, piercing to my own soul, and I want to leave it with you, of really thinking and evaluating, do I understand and believe what Christ is calling me to in the area of evangelism? Jeremy Walker says this, he says, we cannot pretend that we have understood divine truth unless we are living it. We cannot present that we know and believe the truth about men, souls, heaven, hell, and salvation unless it is making a difference in the way we think, feel, pray, speak, and act. That would be my my challenge to myself, first and foremost then to all of us as a church body do we really believe that the lord is calling us to go and be ambassadors to go and carry the gospel forth do we really have a message of hope that can change and transform lives do we really have the message that people need to hear and believe and without that message they are destined for judgment Do we firmly believe that? And if we do, we really know we believe it when, not just when we can give the answer on the test, but when it begins to impact the way that we think, who we are on the inside, and then it begins to change the way that we act. May we go forth as ambassadors. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise you for your goodness, your grace, your compassion towards us, even while we were yet sinners. Lord, you have been so patient with us. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us boldness, that you would grant us wisdom uh, as you send us out to go and proclaim your gospel. And Lord, may we be willing to go, may we begin to be intentional and to go and to do our best. May we just go and speak about your Son, Jesus Christ, who has died for our sin, paying for it on the cross, who has risen from the grave, ascended into heaven, who has now changed and transformed all of our lives. Lord, may we speak of him and point others to you with gentleness and grace and give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.